more than Chevys, right? What was it? Pardon me? Diversity, tolerance, families changing. Now, I'm going to declare over the next three weeks it's not, not according to the Word of God, but they are declaring in as public a forum as you can possibly get that we need to get ready because the description and definition of marriage and family is dramatically changing. How many of you saw this Fox News article? Until the hour now, is having a wife and a child at the age of 23 an alternative lifestyle? Well, at NBC in Washington, the answer is yes. The network tweeted this image of gold medalist and American freestyle skier David Wise with his family, along with this caption. David Wise's alternative lifestyle leads to Olympic gold. So are we really at the point in America where being a father and a husband is unconventional? Joining us now is... Did you see that? You again get the message they're trying to communicate. Being a dad, being a, a man that's married, by the way, to his wife and has a child is an alternative lifestyle. It's not. It's what God expects. It's what God demands. It's what God blesses. I love the Olympics, and I was really glad when Bob Costas came back. But during that experience, he was driving me crazy because he kept pushing a political agenda and kept saying it over and over and over again. I love the head of the IOC in an interview with Costas as Costas was trying to continually push a politically correct agenda. Thomas Bach said, this is a sporting event. It's not about politics. But you cannot help but notice we are being sold a message as loud as they can possibly say it. That homosexuality and same-sex marriage is the new normal, so get used to it. And states all across the country are recognizing, oh, it's almost like a domino effect. Over and over again, all across the land, states are recognizing same-sex marriage as what it needs to be. Let me say as clearly as I can, God has been saying for 2,000 years, marriage is between one man and one woman. And I want you to understand the context from which I'm coming from. Now, I want to clearly point something out. When you look at this list in Colossians that we've been studying over the last few weeks, the things you get rid of, things you take on, but specifically the things you get rid of, you will notice very clearly that God doesn't say, now look, there is one, by the way, that's worse than the others. Did you see that in there? It doesn't say that. You will notice that God does not say, hey, I want you to know there's one in this list that's worse than the others. So if you've got to get rid of one of them, at least get rid of this one. He doesn't say that at all. No, he says slander, anger, filthy talk, greed is right there with sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6 does the same thing. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who have sex with men or thieves nor the greedy nor the drunkards nor the slanderers nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you are like that, but you're not anymore. You were washed, you were sanctified, you're justified in the name of Christ by the Spirit of the Son of the living God. When you walk away from all of that old lifestyle and embrace Christ as Savior, that old lifestyle disappears. And we need to understand 
evangelical believers, believers in general, churches need to understand that many times it's easier to talk about the obvious sins that we're against and ignore the ones that we honestly struggle with. So every evangelical church and every church in America has got to be careful with that because it's very easy. There's nobody in the world that doesn't know what the church is against. We don't always know what we're for. How come you just didn't say amen to that one as you did the other one? Because it's true. I have a hard time saying that the Westwood Baptist Church are brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't believe they are. But that church pickets gay funerals all across this land everywhere they can. In the name of the church and in the name of God. I didn't agree with Jerry Falwell or Pat Robinson. I usually don't agree with Pat Robinson. When they were talking about 9-11 being God's judgment on us for what we're doing. Every time I preach, I want to be really clear that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman and sex within the confines of marriage. And every time I preach or teach on the subject of marriage or family, I will always preach from that disposition. So I want you to be really clear. Our country is buying a lie, a number of lies. They're buying the lie of tolerance in that everyone's opinion is equally valued and there is no such thing as absolute truth. Believing both of these lies are signs of insanity. The tolerance is that everyone's opinion is equally valid and there is no such thing as absolute truth. Just in case you're wondering, there is. It's right here. And every time I preach on the subject of marriage and family, which I'll do today in the next few weeks, I will always preach from that grid, that marriage as God designed it is one man, one woman within the confines of that relationship. Having sexual relations which brings children into the picture. What I want us to be careful about in evangelical churches all across America, churches in general, is that we have to be really careful. We don't elevate one sin as worse than the other, especially the ones that we're against, and never discuss the ones that we, within the confines of churches, struggle with. Do you, you get what I'm trying to say? Pretend you're here. Because it's really important that you understand the difference between the two. Colossians chapter 3 is where we've been over the last few weeks, and we're going to continue there in our journey together. And what you will notice in verse 18 and 19, that Paul gives us a very short version of his advice for marriage. And any time you discuss the subject of marriage, and any time you have the opportunity based on the platform of Scripture that we happen to be in, I'm going to back up a little bit. Today I'll back up a lot and talk specifically about what the Word of God says about marriage and about that particular subject. That's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. Now here in Colossians, specifically, you need to really understand the context. The old life that we put to death, the immorality, the slander, the anger, the filthy talk, the lying to one another, and the new life that we put on. That's where we've been over the last few weeks. These are the things you get rid of. This is the new life you put on now that you're a follower of Christ. A life of compassion and tenderness and kindness and humility and forgiveness and love. All of those things, what I get rid of and what I embrace, all of those things are best displayed in the home. That lifestyle that you're embracing in Christ is best displayed and lived out and fleshed out within the confines of the home. Then, when Paul was writing, and now, 
The home becomes even more important as the center of Christian maturity and education when the surrounding society becomes so wicked that it accepts and even promotes immorality. Same thing that was going on in Paul's day is the same thing going on in our day. And what Paul is saying, and the reason that I believe he puts it in the context here, is that when society gets so immoral and even promotes immorality, certainly does in our day, certainly did in his day, the Christian home, the home becomes even more important for spiritual formation and to live out our faith. Sections of Scripture like this are not about who gets power and authority to run the family, but they affirm that the family is the primary context for spiritual formation and living out our faith. How we live in our family says a great deal about our faith, not what we do on Sunday morning. How we live out Christianity, how it's fleshed out in our lives, the things we get rid of, the things that I take on, love and compassion and tenderness and humility and patience and love and forgiveness, all of those things say a lot about our faith when it's fleshed out within the confines of the family. More so than the hour that I see you on Sunday morning or the 20 minutes that we're singing and celebrating or the 35 minutes that you're spending time absorbing the Word of God. Remember what I said to you last week when we come on a Sunday morning? Everybody's fine, right? I mean, I had people after the service, I said, how you doing? I said, fine. <laughs> they knew what I was saying. They knew what we were doing. Everybody's fine. But you know and I know they're not. But on Sunday morning, we want to appear that way. The, the essence of your faith is not how you live it out or flesh it out on Sunday morning, but how it's fleshed out within the confines of your relationships. Eighty percent of the people in America are one time or the other going to get married. So for those of you who are single and you believe that's God's design for you based on 1 Corinthians 7, awesome. But because 80% of Americans are going to get married at one time or the other, I always want to make sure that I clearly allow Scripture to be used as a platform to help us understand what it looks like. And I, I, I just think God's fascinating and brilliant when he takes what we have just studied over the last few weeks and what to get rid of and what to put on and then says it needs to be fleshed out within the confines of relationships, specifically in the family and then it'll go into the workplace and then just into everyday relationships. We won't even have time to get to just because of our schedule over the next few weeks and get ready for Easter. You can't miss that because that's critical to our understanding of what this section of Scripture is all about. Paul's advice in this section is really short, which makes it clear that he has no intention of providing an advice manual on family relationships. He's just saying that the family is a place where we first live out this newness in Christ as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And that previous section when he talked about all those virtues that we've got to get rid of and the ones we put on, those virtues that we put on are empty talk unless they're lived out and fleshed out within the confines of everyday relationships. So in light of that, chapter 3, verse 18, he says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. And then he moves into other sections. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes upon you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for God. The gospel, in which there is no Greek, Jew, slave, free, male, or female, recognizes each individual. 
and is concerned to protect, not enforce, his or her subordination. Wives are to be treated with love, children with understanding, and slaves as human beings. When we become followers of Christ, we then follow his example. And it's more about self-giving than self-assertion. Somewhere in your Bible or uh, somewhere write down Philippians chapter 2, one of the best, one of the most amazing scriptures ever written. You want to understand how to flesh this out? What are you saying in Colossians? Uh, if you write in your Bible, I write, write all over mine. I've got one that's beat up and so old, but I don't want to get rid of it and get a new one because I've got some great notes in it. But right beside Colossians 3, 17 and 18, write Philippians 2. Now listen to Philippians 2 within the context of what I just said a moment ago. When I become a follower of Christ, I want to follow his example. This is what it says. And your relationships with each other have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be held so tightly, one of the versions say. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, was made in human likeness, and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. In his case, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You want to look at a model of how to live out within the confines of family relationship or any relationship. We've got a great one in Jesus. He was God. Had everything, if you were living in heaven, the Son of God had all of all of humanity and all of glory at your disposal, would you have given it up to save me or to save you? But he gave it all up. He set it aside, took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. Now, when Paul says all your relationships should be like that, he's not talking about who's the highest on the level of authority. When he said, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, then he helps us understand that we are then becoming the servants in the relationship, not the ones to be served. Commands in Colossians 3, they don't tell us how to order the families. They focus on the motivation behind family relationships, how we relate to one another. Every member of the family, no matter what their role, needs to allow the lordship of Christ to control his or her interpersonal relationships. Now, down through the ages, Paul has often been criticized for being down on women or putting them down. The, the truth is, he presented a radically new view of marriage and family that elevated women and children to a level of equality that was extremely rare in those days, especially in light of the day and age in which he's writing to. <laughs> One writer said, Love in marriage then, when Paul was writing, was a stroke of good luck. It was not the basis of the institution. But when Paul said, love your wives like Christ loved the church, he's radically elevating the role of marriage and what it is that we're to do with one another. The Hebrew and Greek understanding of marriage reduced women, to things to be, women as things to be used and enjoyed, not loved and cherished. Paul, Ephesians, tells men to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Before Paul, Jesus' attitude toward women was revolutionary. He saw and treated women as persons of worth and value to the highest level, far different than how society viewed them at the time. The word submit in verse 18 has been misused forever. 
Men love verse 18, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. We love that verse. Ken Davis tells the story of a man who wasn't very assertive, went to a therapist, came back and said, woman, I want you to know that I'm the man of the house. Tonight, you're going to fix me a great meal. After that, a gourmet dessert. Then you're going to draw me a hot bath. And after that, do you know who's going to dress me and fix my hair? Yep, she said, the funeral director. (laughs) Still one of my favorite stories. If we only concentrate on the phrase, wives submit, we miss the concept that submission was not a command only for wives. In relation to their husbands, it's one of the distinctive marks of Christian discipleship. That's why Philippians 2 is so critical to understand within the context of these relationships. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Submit is written in what's called in Greek the middle voice. It's how it's shared or how the inflection goes. It implies a willing choice, fitting to the Lord. What you know should be proper. I have women all the time who say to me, when, when my husband is wanting me to do things that are inconceivable that we would do in the confines of our relationship, am I to do that based on the verses in Ephesians and Colossians that say, wives, submit to your husbands? And my answer is no. It's fitting to the Lord. Being asked to do what you know you should do, not what you shouldn't do. God's design for marriage started at the very beginning of the story of humanity. In Genesis 2.18, as God was finishing creation, everything being signed with his signature statement, it's good. But then when he created man, he said, it's, it's not done. It's not complete. Like a master craftsman who said, I'm not finished yet. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought it to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And now the master craftsman is done. In the book that I've used before many times when I talk about marriage, the book Captivating by John and Stacey Eldridge, they say this, Eve is not an afterthought. She's not a nice addition like an ornament on a tree. She is God's final finishing touch on creation. Every time I do a wedding, and the almost 200 weddings that I've done, I read a section that's as old as time, and some will say three to 500 years old, but it goes like this. Marriage is the first interpersonal relationship that man has ever known. Scriptures tell us that Adam was created first in a perfect environment, surrounded by other living creatures. Companionship on his level was missing, though. So God created another human being, not just a man to have friendship with, but a woman to share his affections with. Not a man to compete against, but a woman to confide in. The woman was not created out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. You're going to hear that in a couple weeks. That was God's design. Always been. Oneness, harmony, equality, headship, absolutely, but it's not the issue. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, they give the specific detail of the creation of woman. In chapter 1, verse 26, you see the broader picture of God's creation of humanity. And it says this, Then God said, Let us make man humanity in our image. In our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed them. God said to them, Multiply and subdue. Co-design, a team effort. The mission to be fruitful and conquer and run the earth is given both to Adam and to Eve. God said to them, Eve is standing right there when God gives the world over to us. She has a vital role to play, a partner in this great adventure. When God creates Eve, he calls her in Hebrew, Ezer Keneged. Not good for man to be alone. I will make him an Ezer Keneged. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter spent years trying to translate the book of Genesis from Hebrew into English, and he said that particular phrase is a little difficult to translate. We've made a lot of attempts in English, helper, companion, or help meet. He said, to be really honest with you, you get closer when you translate it, sustainer beside him. The word Ezer is used 20 times in other places in the Old Testament. And every incident, the person described as God himself, that we desperately need to come and help us. Deuteronomy 33, there is no one like God who rides on the heavens to help you. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 33, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Most of the contexts are life and death, and God is our hope, our easer. If he's not there, we won't make it through. Another translation of easer would be lifesaver. Keneged means to come alongside, a counterpart. The New Testament connection in that phrase is similar to the role of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who walks alongside. And both phrases, the paraclete and the, the keneged, have a similar connotation of what the Holy Spirit does for all of us in our relationship with God. He comes alongside and he walks with us in this journey. Now you men know why the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of your wife sounds so similar. There is a connection. In the book Captivating, the phrase goes like this, the the longing in the heart of a woman to share life together as a great adventure comes straight from the heart of God who longs for that as well. God does not want to be an option in our lives. He doesn't want to be a tag along. Neither does any woman. God is essential. He wants us to want him desperately. Eve is essential. She has an irreplaceable role to play. That was God's design from the beginning. Then came the fall and the design is shattered. The woman convinced that God was holding out on her, convinced that in order to have the best possible life, she had to take matters into her own hands, and so she did. In disobeying God, she violates her very essence. She's supposed to be Adam's Ezer Keneged, the one who comes to save. She's to bring him life. Instead, she invited him to death. Now, to be fair, Adam doesn't ride to her rescue. Where's Adam when... God is, uh, the enemy is tempting Eve. He's right there. 
right there beside her in verse three, verse six of chapter three. So she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The Hebrew word with her means right there, right beside her, elbow to elbow, not in another part of the forest or the garden. He's standing right there watching the entire event unravel and he does nothing, absolutely nothing. Doesn't say a word, won't risk, doesn't fight, doesn't rescue. Our first father, Adam, the first real man, gave in to paralysis, denied his very nature of what he was supposed to do and went passive. And every man after him, if we're not careful, carries in his heart the same possibilities of the same failure. You can see it played out every day. Men, just when you need them to come through, check out. They disappear. They go silent and passive. The phrase I hear all the time is, he just won't talk to me. And women tend to be grasping, reaching, controlling. Often enchanted like Eve, so easily falling prey to the lies of the enemy. Having forfeited our confidence in God, we believe in order to have the life we want, we have to take matters into our own hands. Sin, selfishness, and passivity enter the picture and destroy God's design. Marriage, as God designed it, has suffered the consequences ever since. The innocence, emotional innocence, relational innocence, spiritual innocence, the oneness, the co-regency that God designed is shattered. And comes a curse. Verse 16 of chapter 3, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. And it says this, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. He will rule over you. And you'll fight against it. That's the Result of the curse, it's not how God designed it to be. Headship before the fall, that's what God intended. Ruling over, dominating, is not what God intended. Before the cursed unity and mutual submission, now because of sin, male domination and female manipulation, seeking to control. Now partners will be at war with one another. Male chauvinism, male domination. You see it in Scripture, you see it in Jesus' day, you see it in Paul's day. Mary is dominated by Satan, sin, and society. And so sadly, we see it all the way to today. See it in TV shows all the time. The, the new normal, the young and the useless. As the stomach turns, no life to live. Wife swap, desperate housewives. The list is endless of what the media is pushing to us. You want to know why marriage is so tough? We bought the lie. God is holding out. And so you got to go after it for yourself and get all you can for you. And the consequences of sin is all about my satisfaction. And sin, Satan, society are in an all-out war to destroy the home. Even in church sometimes when you've got a man who really is serving his wife and his family, who's not dominant and overbearing, just, just wants to serve, you'll hear phrases like, well, we know that wife runs that family. That's not true. And we have some men who think that what it means to be the head of the home is to sit back and give orders. So I've got to ask myself, where did God's design go? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Where did it go? And how on earth can we ever get it? Well, you're asking a really, really good question. You're smart. 
And next Sunday morning, I'm going to answer that question. Because it's critical that we understand God's design, God's desire, God's purpose. And the only place the world is ever going to see what it's supposed to look like is in the home of a believer, a follower of Christ, who submits himself to him and to one another to show the world what it's supposed to look like and what God desires. Where else are they going to learn it? Television? The media? Or from God's word and believers who are following him? Let me pray. Father, again, I, I always come to the end of a message acknowledging that your word is so powerful. And I am so unbelievably grateful that you didn't leave us alone and try to figure this all out by ourselves. But that you gave us really clear directions and you gave us some wonderful models of what the home of a believer is to look like and what the marriage of a believer is to look like. And so, Father, in these weeks as we unpack this, I trust, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you'll help us to fully understand and grasp what it means to flesh out humility and love and tenderness and grace, forgiveness, bearing with one another, and over all of that, put on love in our homes and in our marriages. Lord, we are fighting such an uphill battle. It's overwhelming at times. And so, Lord, I just pray that in these weeks together that we'll clearly understand what you're calling us to do. Maybe it is to change society, and certainly there are a lot of ways that we can heavily influence the cultural shift around us. But, Father, we don't want to be in that wake of a cultural shift that blows our marriages and blows our families up and we're left in the wake. So God, in the name of Jesus, help us as we flesh it out in everyday life and everyday living. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.